Hey everyone, welcome back to the Principal Podcast. Today's guest is an exciting one, uh, Michael Girdley. Welcome to the show. Yeah, excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. We're really excited to have you. Um, so Michael, you're a tech entrepreneur based in San Antonio, Texas. Is that right? That's right. Um, and you're pursuing a hold call strategy in which you've got, I believe, 13 um, and counting companies. Um, and please go ahead. I would It would be really helpful for you to give kind of a brief introduction as to your strategy, who you are, um, and your day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks a lot. Um, yeah, it's 11, I think. I got to <laughs> count it up because uh, when I talk about kind of what I do, it, it'll make sense as to why sometimes it's 11, sometimes it's 10. Yeah. But um, yeah, so like I really practice, I think, a form of kind of parallel entrepreneurship um, where you've heard of serial entrepreneurs and they do things. And to me, I'm involved in a bunch of different things that are meaningful uh, in terms of businesses, you know, for my personal net worth and kind of time. So, you know, over time, I started with owning one business and then I started a second one and then I, I moved to a third one and a fourth one while, you know, I think moving myself to a board role to where, you know, there's other operators in there who are running the business. And so all these different businesses have CEOs. And then, you know, generally my job is to support them and then help them and then uh, look for new things to add to the portfolio at this stage of life. Got it. And of the 11 companies that are currently in your hold co, how many of them were were ventures that were started by you from the ground up versus how many of them were existing companies that you acquired and then um, improved operationally? Yeah, most are um, are de novo things that um, started from scratch. Uh, there are, you know, there is a kind of interesting kind of nesting that goes with Holdco. So like I have a hold, I have, I'm a Holdco, right? And then there's like a Holdco that I started in 2018 that does specifically software stuff. So that one's totally mm-hmm. built on acquisitions. That company's bought 11 different companies. Um, and that is one that's, you know, depending on how you count it, it could be most of the things were acquired. Um, or if you look at it in a different way, there's a lot of um, just starting from scratch as well. And I like to do both strategies because they're really both very entertaining and fun, depending upon, you know, what opportunity you can find in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the advantages to using a whole co like why why did you go with uh, the whole co investment vehicle um, for your personal investment strategy yeah look I think there are lots of ways to get rich in the world um, and the really given all of that the interesting thing is you then think okay well what kind of life do I want to be living what sort of problems do I want to be doing what sort of people do I want to be working with um, what sort of kind of uh, different types of day-to-day experiences do I want to have? And so for me, like I spent a lot of time in my late twenties and early thirties thinking about what kind of life I wanted to be living in my forties, fifties, and sixties, and what kind of things I wanted to be doing. And I knew I wanted to be working on interesting problems. I knew I wanted to be continually like elevating myself and working on bigger and more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew I didn't want to just stay focused on one thing. I wanted to live in a creative space. So I kind of backed into the strategy of having multiple parallel ventures because I first started with the life I wanted to live and then worked my way backwards to a strategy that could make money around that. Um, so anyway, that's that's how I got to where, where I ended up with like this. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. So you kind of optimized for kind of um, looking into the future and seeing what kind of life you wanted to live and then reverse engineer the path from there. 100%, yeah. So I think a lot of people think about like, and I think it's a mistake. Think about like the vision they want for their life. And they're like, I want, you know, this house or I want to have this job title or whatever. And 
I'm much more like a very practical person. I'm much more focused on like, okay, well, let's start with what, you know, what happens when the rubber hits the road? Like, what does my day actually look like? And then how do I build a foundation from that? And I think that's a much more pure way of thinking about it because, you know, if you decide you want to have a lawyer job title, right, or you want to be an MD at an investment bank, like you can end up looking up and be like, well, I love the title, but I hate everything I do every day and I hate the people I work with. So if you start with the inverse, which is, okay, I know the foundation of a great life is these foundational components where like, I like the people I'm working with. I'm working on interesting problems. I'm, t- I'm inspired by the work I'm doing. And I think if you start that way and you build your way up, you, it's impossible to end up in a situation where you hate your work after a decade or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the common advice, right? To, to start with the end in mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I think oftentimes it gets lost with, like you said, fancy titles and kind of prestige as opposed to what the day-to-day actually entails. hundred um, percent. I wish I could remember where it was, but I remember that you, maybe it was a comment that you made or something that you uh, discussed on your newsletter, how it took you some time to realize that rather than being the day-to-day operator, you were better at like kind of managing the entire um, business from 300,000 foot view or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I- and to, and to be clear, I don't actually manage anything. Like if I'm if I'm managing things beyond working specifically with the single CEOs and being you know the point of contact and doing the board stuff that they need me to do, like if I'm managing the day to day of the business, something has gone horribly wrong. So yeah. I don't actually run any. People are like, "How do you run eleven businesses?" I was like, "Actually, I don't. Like I let the I let the folks that are hired to do those jobs, you know, do their job." and get out of their way. And I think that's much more sustainable than the way a lot of people say, go to have two businesses, right. And think, well, I'm just going to be like a board chair for those. And then the next thing you know, they're like, and they're like messing with their CEO or co-CEOing or meddling. And like, I try very hard not to do any of those things because it's not productive. Right. Right. So I guess to rephrase the question, rather than kind of managing the day to day, you figured that you were better at like finding talent and putting the right people in charge. Right. What what was it that kind of led to this realization? Was it like a, a series of failed experiments or how did that look? Uh, the moment, well, okay. So there's always, you know, revisionist history on stuff. But um, the more I talk about this kind of concept, the more I, the more I remember an incident where, you know, I was uh, the CEO of a single business and I was the day-to-day guy and, and everything, you know, I thought was going okay. And um, I thought I was essential. Like, yeah, I'm, this place couldn't run without me. This without me, this place would fall apart. It's like the total boomer like line. I'm not a boomer, by the way, but anyway, it was it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, this place this place needs me or it will fall apart. Nobody else could do this job. And uh, I went on like a long vacation, like a three week vacation, and I came back and like I had just told everybody, hey, here are the expectations. This is what we need for you know need to happen while i'm gone and when they came back not only did the team accomplish all those things but they actually got a lot more done without me being present and i was like wait a second maybe this whole idea that this place is dependent upon me and maybe i'm not as good of an operator as maybe you know my hubris would make me think like that was a moment where i was like oh like maybe i need to open my mind to being much more of an imperfect human being uh, in terms of being, you know, not, not God's gift to CEOing, for example. So I do remember that moment. There's some revisionist history, I'm sure to that, but you know, as I think about it, like I just started to see, I kind of sucked at stuff (laughs) and I was honest with myself about where I was good and where it wasn't good. And what business was that? What was the, uh, Uh, that was our, the business we still own, which is the, the retail and consumer fireworks business. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 
Yep. And you've mentioned previously that the fireworks business is like the most difficult business that you've uh, been involved in running. Oh yeah. It's yeah. super hard. Yeah. What makes it so difficult? Is the seasonality or? Oh, seasonality is really hard. So there's all these nuances that make it much more difficult to, to run than a normal business. So like a normal business, for example, you have like a nice regular cadence, like, okay, I'm a lumber distributor, right? And like, month by month, I'll be able to protect what's going on. I can make little changes here and there. And, you know, you have a good, like fast cycle of learning. Well, like the fireworks business doesn't have that. Like you, you basically, we sell twice a year in Texas. We sell for 4th of July and New Year's. And you're in a situation where like anything you learn from 4th of July one year, you have to hope to try to reapply that the next year. Like it's a year long information cycle. So that's one of the things that's very difficult. Like your, your, like your OODA loop. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but your decision-making loop is like really, really delayed because of that seasonality of it. You have, um, you know, from a personal standpoint, you're working during holidays. So like, I've never had like, since I was 28, I've never had a normal like Christmas holiday. Like I've, I, it's just like, I don't have a normal one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you have the second, the, the third thing going on, you can imagine the cash flow dynamics are incredibly difficult. It's a capital intensive business. We're buying land, we're building buildings, we're buying fireworks, we're paying people salaries. And then in Texas, we only start selling like December 20th, say, or, or in the case of July the 4th, July, June 24th. So we'll go five and a half months with basically no revenue. And then it all comes in at one time. Uh, you've got, um, a situation where most authorities don't want us to be in business because they don't want to work during the holidays either. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just keeps going on and on. Like it's a hugely logistically challenging business. You know, you're dealing with vagaries of the, the China supply chain, you know, COVID, COVID shut down all the fireworks production for a long period of time. And then now guess what? Everybody has a ton of fireworks. (laughs) They all showed up. Um, So all that just compounds to make it compared to a normal business, just like such on hard mode, just so difficult. But it was such a gift to get to run a business like that. Because like now when I go to a normal business, say one with like a, or even a great business with like a negative cash conversion cycle, like I'm just like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like, you mean people pay us before we deliver the service? (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is so easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like you have a meeting with like a city official and they're like, we are so happy you're here. I'm like, really? You're going to help us out? Mm -hmm. So, so just kind of craziness in terms of how it's, it's been a gift because it makes everything else that I work on seem so easy in comparison. Got it. So from that perspective, would you recommend entrepreneurs that are just getting started in their journey to kind of cut their teeth with something that's a little more seasonal and and a little more difficult to run um, like the fireworks business? Or do you think that's just like kind of an unnecessary step? (laughs) Uh, The older I'm getting, the more I want to just play easy games. Like, like I don't, I don't want to play hard games anymore. Hard games Mm -hmm. are just super lame. Right. And so a hard game is like, you know, getting to a business that's a potentially like a red ocean business or one that's just like very difficult to acquire customers or like there's a lot of headwinds in it. Like none of that sounds very, very fun at all. Right. And like, mm-hmm. like 
in the case of the fireworks business, you look at established vendors like us that have been around for 60, 70 years, like you're not going to compete with us. You're not going to compete with us. There's a reason we've been around 70 years, right? Like mm-hmm. we're really, really good at what we do. We own all the cornered resources. Like it's going to be difficult for you to compete with somebody like us. So no, I think the advice I would have for young people is like, definitely go start a business, but don't like, don't be masochistic, <laughs> like take on some business just to like, put yourself through hell, right? Go find something, go find something the easiest you possibly can and then just go try it um, would be what I would tell people to do. But yeah, don't do something hard. It's no fun. Yeah. Just just read your tweets and uh, <laughs> listen to your podcast to, to pick up the lessons along the way. Yeah. 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 It's probably a better idea. Um, so now on the flip side, you've also mentioned that your coding bootcamp, I think it's called Code Up. Is that correct? Yep. The um, the bootcamp is the cash cow of, of your whole co. And at the same time, it's also helping people. So um, service-based businesses, I, w- I would love to pick your brain on that a little bit. Do you think yeah. that more people should consider starting a service-based business? And what are some of the advantages and drawbacks to doing so? Yeah. And to be clear, I think the education market is... Um, it's a pretty hard mode business compared to some others, especially in the services world. And it, it doesn't generate a ton of cash well, nobody's, mm-hmm. nobody's getting an Island for that business, but it has other benefits, right? Which is we we've built something that just helps a lot of people both on a micro level and also the community level, which is really inspiring. And I love, I love that about the business. Anyway, uh, it does just to be clear, nobody's getting rich on code up. I don't want any code up people to be like, those guys are getting rich. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell you, I didn't get paid anything this year. Like it's not a good, it's, it wasn't a great year. Um, yeah. but, um, anyway, like I think as you know, for somebody starting out, especially if you don't have a lot of capital, um, services businesses are amazing. Like they're a great playground. It's relatively low risk. Uh, you can get in there and and really start to generate a lot of cash pretty quickly for yourself, especially as a young person. You can learn a lot of really good lessons around everything from production to sales. So I think if I was talking to a 23-year-old right now, I'd say definitely go do that. Like go, go do an agency, go do some sort of consulting, get mm-hmm. out there, learn how to sell and, uh, and really try to do that stuff. Um, now there's a downside to services businesses, which is most of the services models have really a difficulty scaling, right? You see these guys and folks who build agencies and guess what? Every agency kind of tops out around like the owner making four to 500,000 a year. If they do really well, that's great money. Absolutely great money. Um, and you have to work hard to get there, but it's really hard to go from there to be three times that size. Like most services businesses really struggle there. Um, and you either have to have some sort of productized service or you have to have a situation where you're in a cool niche that you can possibly get beyond that. So is hiring the bottleneck. The problem actually from most of those agency models like SEO and stuff like that, or even, you know, web, web dev, web design is you start to run into the problem of your personal scalability. You know, most of those folks end up, especially if you're targeting kind of small, small customers, those are very much relationship based where you as an owner of that agency have to have relationships with your customers and you can only scale that so much. Like you can only own so much of a book of business. And then next thing you know, like, because your competitive advantage is your relationship with them, you can only scale that so much. And that's why it kind of, kind of taps out in terms of that kind of situation. I guess, what is your process for finding talented operators to run the day-to-day businesses that you um, acquire a stake in? Yeah. Well, I've been really lucky recently. Like I've had no turnover in like two and a half years because I've worked really hard on retention. Mm -hmm. Um, It's much cheaper to keep a great person than it is to go try to find a new one. Um, 
you know, in terms of my process, I run it very similarly to how you would run a search for a leader or a CEO at a larger business, right? So I, I think that's a pattern I've kind of learned is um, like, if I want to go find deals, I kind of copy how private equity does it, but I just do it at a smaller scale towards smaller stuff and all that can work really well. So in case of finding operators, you know, I run it, I run it with a number of principles that I really like. Um, and we can dig into some of those if, if you want to. Uh, and then I just run a standard kind of hiring process. Um, you know, the thing I've learned, which is really interesting, is that the number of people who want to be CEOs of an established small business, those number of people like way outnumbers the quantity of actual jobs that are available, right? Most small businesses are run by an owner operator, person who owns the business, they run the business. And, you know, I've found that when you give somebody an opportunity to kind of skip that step of having to start something and grow it, um, or could they compare that to an alternative of going to work at a big company someplace and just being a cog in the machine, like tons of people want those jobs. So um, if you can write a compelling job description, you can give people a compelling opportunity. Uh, then I just run a standard hiring process against that, that I use pretty much on every role. So, in your mind, um, if it were between kind of running a small business operation, kind of being the CEO and, and taking taking the reins on that front versus a similar position um, within a larger scale organization where, you know, the upside might not be as high, but the salary is there to make up for it and yeah. kind of compensate you. Do you think that more people would be interested in the former rather than the latter? Um I don't know the exact ratio of the population out there. Like, is it 20% that want that kind of job or 2% or whatever? Sure. I just know that the number of people that want those jobs where they get to be, have both the responsibility and the authority to make impact, you know, as a CEO of a small organization, like I think the number of people that want those jobs vastly outnumbers the number of jobs that are actually out there. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of what percentage of population that is, I don't know, like when I've put out these types of roles in the past, I'll get hundreds or thousands of applicants of people that want the job. Now, are some of those people like completely unqualified? Yeah, absolutely. Like they should, <laughs> they're not, they've never managed a person. There's no way you're running a small business, but you know, I, I see really qualified people interested in those jobs. Like it's, it's, it seems to be a compelling opportunity for a significant percentage of the population. Right. Um, and I want to get back to your principles in just a second here, but um, something comes to mind when I, I try to put myself in your vantage point, um, and that's the principal agent problem, right? Um, essentially, getting the agents that you put in charge of these companies to be aligned with the mission, um, aligned with your mission, right? Yeah. How have you gone about kind of tackling the principal agent problem in any of your ventures? Yeah, I think there's a number of hacks to do that, um, that, that are helpful. I mean, I think the biggest one, right or wrong, um, is actually hiring great people. Like people, like the best, the best operators, I'll look up like a year or two after we've started to work together and I'll be like, I think this person cares more about my business than I do. <laughs> like, and I care about a lot. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of selection is I think the biggest way to really solve for that principal agent problem. Uh, and then I think you can reinforce that a ton by just doing some little things that are really, you know, really compelling. Um, the one I like to do the most, um, is to have a bonus structure that di directly ties the incentive compensation for an individual CEO to the, um, to the interests of the ownership, right? So uh, that all depends upon the strategy that you as an owner want to have with the business. So for example, you could have a situation where you own a business and it's all about growth. Well, then you give people a bonus based on growth, right? Um, you know, there's the idea of 
running for cash flow, you could have a bonus system around that. There's a middle ground where you run for healthy growth and healthy profits. And I think that's the most sustainable if you plan on being a long-term holder. So I actually have a whole bonus structure that I use with folks. Um, and I've put that on my website and to my course and stuff like that as well, to where you know it gives people a balance between growth and profitability um, in terms of how to define their variable compensation. So bonuses are another technique. Um, Sometimes and not always um, giving people, you know, equity in the company uh, is something that can come through and, and be really useful. So in several ventures, you know, I've co-founded them with other people and those have CEOs who are substantial on the cap table, you know, 20, 30 10%, depending upon what it is and the contribution there at the beginning. That tends to work best if you're doing kind of a de novo or new type thing from scratch. It's harder to come in and give people equity when you know the business is already established or there's maybe other kind of stuff going on around the business where you're not able to do that. So those are really the, the three techniques. Hire well, that's more important than all of them to align comp around it. And then three, if it's possible, you know, you try to make the people be an owner alongside you. Uh, and those can be really, really powerful. So on that third point of trying to make the people an owner alongside you, um, offering that equity compensation that kind of tends to work the best in, in terms of incentivizing people to kind of put their heads down. Um, what if like, what characteristics does an operator need to bring to the table in order for you to consider doing that, right? Because as an owner, that's not always something that people are willing to give up, um, giving up equity in, in some right. of these companies, um, especially ones that they're you know building from scratch. So what are some of the characteristics that kind of um, get you more comfortable in, in doing so when you yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's all the basic stuff. Like, do you want to work with a person? Do you see them, see yourself wanting to spend time with them over the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, through the life cycle of a particular venture? Those are all there. Um, there are things that I've observed that really indicate that it's more highly likely that somebody's going to work out in those situations. I mean, one of the things I really like is if, you know, you're putting together a, a deal or a new company with an operator, you know, and I'm putting in capital and writing a check into it, you know, are they willing to do the same thing? You know, if that happens, that can really, you know, I'm, I'm batting a thousand on those people really giving a, giving a crap about the thing doing really well. Um, and it, and that can make a big difference. You know, I think the other, the other part of it is if you structure things the right way, you can make sure that partnering with somebody or giving up equity isn't, isn't a one-way door. Um, so there's things like, for example, you know, buy, sell, um, triggers in terms of being able to get yourself out of a venture. You know, you plan for divorce basically for that kind of thing. If somebody's not working out, there are vesting periods as well that I think are also pretty powerful where you mm -hmm. can say, okay, your vesting is going to be for five years or 10 years or something like that. And those can really help kind of minimize the effect of that one way door, but it's just like anything else. Like I think you're hinting at it, giving up equity, like it's got benefits, which we talked about. And then it's got, everything's got costs. There's trade-offs and everything. There's no, no free lunch. Right. Um, if we could, can you, can we go back to some of the principles that you alluded to earlier in hiring? Yes. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So I, I've become very hardcore about, having a really rigid and, and strenuous hiring process. And the reason is, is I spent five, six, seven years like hiring a bunch of people. And like, I would hire these people that didn't work out. I, 
hired one person who kind of turned out to be like very uh, almost ran the company into a ground into the ground like they mm-hmm. were lying to everybody you know and it was like man this isn't really working and for a while honestly my hiring process was you seem really nice why don't you come work here and it's like well that's not a very good hiring process so i went and spent like a number of years um studying how other people do hiring and what works and what doesn't and talk to all my friends who run small businesses and like started to see what they did. And really, you know, I came up with these three questions to ask about, you know, an individual and how to think about if they're going to succeed or not. Um, And what I saw was the people that were really great performers when they got into the role Number one, you know, they were winners, like they had a track record of like producing things. Uh, Number two, they were like very bright, like they were for what we needed. They were able to process information. They could make good decisions and stuff like that. And then number three, they had the types of personality traits that I wanted. Right. And so like as an example, in terms of personality traits, uh, I'm sure you have some friends that are like love doing like love following rules and processes and that's just the way they want to do stuff and guess what they do they're accountants and then (laughs) then you have your friends who are like you know what we're gonna do we're gonna put some unicorns on that and want to live in a creative space that's me by the way um and so what i saw kind of as i saw that pattern was um i tied that with the idea that a lot of people have also had this hiring problem right like how do you hire really great people so i went out and actually said well instead of me recreating something from scratch my guess is for these three things there is something out there for each one of those things in terms of a system and so i then went and found these existing off-the-shelf systems one is called top grading um, and we can talk a bit about that one and it has a lot of principles involved in it that i think are very interesting to show if somebody's a winner or not right um And then the second thing is I found there were personality assessment tools. A lot of my friends use these as well. I use one called Culture Index. There's another one called Predictive Index. That's very good to understand how somebody's wired um, because you want them to be the right fit for the job. And then the third thing is aptitude tests, like somebody's general mental ability. So I run assessments around that. And so I end up with this like 20 stage process, which goes through in a couple of weeks. Like if I run it very quickly to squirt out like a really great person on the other end. Uh, And then that's how I ended up with that whole thing. And that's how I do it. And then there's a bunch of principles that are in each one of those systems and kind of double click down. But that's that framework that I use to kind of think about how I'm doing it. Got it. That's super interesting, especially the the point on kind of like the predictive index that you uh, mentioned about um, finding the right personality fit. So as somebody who isn't super familiar with with like putting people through these tests, right, because it's 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 easy to know when somebody is like the accountant type when you spend days, months, weeks, years with them. Right. But it's not so easy to do when you're literally interviewing them for 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and that's kind of the only glimpse of them that that you really get. So yeah. I guess the question that I'm asking is, is there a way to like bullshit your way through some of these personality assessments? And like, how is that, how, how successful have they been in kind of um, assessing the types of personalities that you want to surround yourself with? Yeah. Well, I do think personality assessments, any sort of written assessment, any sort of test or even an interview, they can all be gamed. Like everybody, you know, that's, it's all part of it. And that's kind of number one principle to think about that. Number two is because of that, and because they only give you a limited snapshot view of people, it's important to remember, they're just a data point, right? So where people, I think, get things wrong with um, 
personality assessments or cognitive assessments or even you know reference tracking is like it's not it's not definitive right you're when you're making a decision about somebody you're making it holistically about all the data and it's a probabilistic decision as well right you're never going to be able to run an interview process with somebody and predict if they're going to be a successor or not with 100% accuracy it's just impossible right and you ask yourself well why is that it's like well okay you're operating on limited data and also the world is going to change and the role is going to change right and their life is going to change like so it's just impossible but it can improve your your likelihood of being successful so anyway, the point there being that like when you do these personality assessments and stuff like that, like as you get to know them, you understand, hey, these are potentially gameable or they're not the entire story. And that's just part of it. They're just a data point as you think about it. So did I, did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I, I think your your general takeaway from that is like it's never going to be 100% accurate, but it's a decent enough indicator for you to develop some ability of, of um, reliability on. Absolutely. Like if you're going to, let's say, you know, you want somebody who is going to be a great teammate, able to juggle a lot of balls in the air and really likes to follow rules and processes. Like, let's say, you know, you want somebody like that and you get 500 candidates that come in and you ask them all to take the personality assessment. Are you better off just randomly sampling people based on how their resume looks? Or should you pick the ones that actually like match what your personality assessment is going to tell you? Like, so it just, it just makes your life a little bit easier in terms of then who you take. Okay. Who are the five people I'm going to go take and each spend a day with to understand if they're the right fit or not and dig into their background and all that kind of stuff. So it's a tool to make your life a little bit easier, but it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not deterministic. It's not a death sentence one way or another. Right. It's more of a filtering mechanism. Absolutely. Yep. Got it. So we talked a little bit about your background. Um, we talked about the whole co strategy. And we talked about how you go about um, finding the right operators. So now I want to transition into a conversation about what your framework is for identifying and evaluating investment opportunities. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so how do I go about it? Yeah. So in terms of like opportunity identification, I think there are really three. Um, there are three ways that people go out kind of finding them. You know, there's number one, where they do much more of a lean startup approach, where they go talk to people about their problems. You see patterns, you build a solution to it. Um, then there's kind of the classic waterfall model where you have a vision or a thesis and you go like pursue that kind of thing. You know, for me, I prefer a third one, which is this one called effectuation. Um, have you heard of that or seen, seen anybody talk about it? I have not. It's really interesting. And so it basically came about as an entrepreneurship methodology where the lady who was... Um, who, who did it, she went and interviewed a whole bunch of uh, entrepreneurs and she was out of Darden, which is a business school at UVA. And what she found was there were these people who didn't really match like the classic big VC waterfall vision thesis type thing. And there weren't, and there were the people who didn't really match this lean startup style thing. And instead they started, they started ventures by looking at the change they could affect in the world based on what they were able to do and hence the name effectuation. So it has all these kind of very interesting principles and there's six core ones um, in terms of how to approach it. And basically I just do this on a daily basis, right? Where you, you, for example, one of the principles is you look at everything that doesn't work like as a gift, right? And you've heard me kind of talking about that idea. It's like, oh, that didn't work out. Well, I like, I learned something. So it's a gift. And so like that, there's that idea that you're using, you're running towards mistakes or you're running towards things that won't work 
because you want to see and test what's actually practical in the world. And instead of starting with a big vision or starting with somebody else's problem, you actually start with what your capabilities are, which is this third idea of effectuation. And it becomes really very powerful there. And so that's how I end up with kind of this idea of what I do is a lot of wandering and following curiosity and you know, like my Twitter journey is exactly that. Like I just started writing stuff on there. And the next thing I know, like I'm like a Twitter micro celebrity, like yay me. Um, but it ends up kind of that same way where I stumble into opportunities surely by just beginning to affect change and affect things that I can build and then see what the world says. And so many times I'll go try things and it's like, oh, like that didn't work. <laughs> Nobody wants that. And then we just like, and that happened twice this year and we just like kill it quickly and we move on to the next thing and we say thank you to the universe and go from there. So that's really my methodology and, and how I think about looking for opportunities. Yeah, that seems to be like the common trait among um, entrepreneurs is just the ability to experiment and tinker mm -hmm. and bail quickly when you see that there's no uh, early signs of life. Yeah. Um, and then to your point on wandering, that was funny. Um, I, I was having dinner with a, with a good friend this week and um, we were talking about upcoming guests for the show. And I mentioned your name and he immediately was like, Oh, the Chili's guy. <laughs> the Chili's guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so your stick is working. Uh, that was not the universe assigned that to me. I mean, my family, my family and I were, um, we're driving up to Arkansas to hang out for a week during the pandemic. Uh -huh. and, you know, it's a 10 hour drive and we stopped for dinner at a Chili's like in Fort Smith or something. Yeah. And uh, like the sun was setting, it was beautiful. And uh, like we got food takeout and we sat outside the Chili's in the parking lot and ate on the curb. And it was just like one of the best meals ever. Right. And I took a picture of it and I was like, you know, Hey, like, this is pretty amazing. Like everybody, everybody thinks that you need to go to Brooklyn or like LA or like some, you know, some corner of Chicago to find culture. And like the culture is just like, they're right in front of you. And like, mm -hmm. for me, like, I think Chili's is kind of a bigger idea, which is like, yeah, there's beauty in places like Miami and downtown Atlanta and, you know, Peachtree street and all that kind of stuff and Brooklyn and Manhattan but there's so much beauty just like right in front of us that nobody even really slows down to think about just because it's so common. And I think Chili's is really part of that, right? It's just like, there's a special thing in America where you can go anywhere and get like a reasonably priced, decent meal. That's the same as any place. Like, it's just kind of beautiful. And it's a, it's a, it's something that we kind of elites don't really think through deeply. And it kind of bothers me. So that's Chili's is my defense of the common man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's about what it stands for absolutely well and the food's good too and they're yeah. nice people. <laughs> they sent me they sent me a birthday gift um i was i was i was trying to find the right opportunity for me to ask this next question which is um what role does travel and i guess more broadly speaking wandering have in drumming up business ideas yeah no i think it's super powerful um and really recommend it i mean if you're a kid like a lot of things that I look back on that I think about now and perspectives I have on life, you know, are enormous, enormous impact on me because my parents had the ability and worked hard to give me the ability to go with them to travel places. So we would go to Mexico. And uh, I remember going when I was a 12 year old kid to China, which was still closed, by the way, it was 1987. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I was like, a, you know, I was like an alien going there. But like, if you want to not feel depressed about life, like go hang out in like a third world country where like people are barely able to, you know, they're worrying about what they're going to eat that day um, or they're living really hard lives. And, and so things like that, or I remember it was maybe 10 years ago, 
12 years ago, I went on a trip to China and we toured a wig factory, like where they make the wigs that they sell, like at Spirit Halloween and stuff. And I remember seeing a guy uh, whose whole job was to stand in front of like a 12 inch spinning razor blade and cut the hair that goes onto the fake woods or fake wigs. Like he would pull out the hair, measure it, cut it with his hands. And like he spent his whole day in front of a 12 inch spinning razor blade with no safety gear, no goggles, no nothing. And I was like, wow, like I really have to have it pretty good. Like I, yeah. I need to have some perspective there. So I think it's great for you as a human and we're doing it with our kids a lot, you know, just investing and getting out. I mean, in terms of finding business opportunities, there's the obvious first thing, which is sometimes you go to other places and you see something working in another market and you can copy it in your home market. And if you're in San Antonio or another market that's kind of typically behind the, you know, the zeitgeist, you can be in a situation where you kind of see stuff that's very interesting. Um, You know, I do think getting away from your day to day is also a place to really, you know, let your creative juices go. Um, You know, we would go spend time in the mountains and like, I'd write like 14 or 15 tweets that (laughs) in one walk, because you just let your mind go as you're, you're walking. And, you know, that allows you to be much more creative and think deeply about stuff and get away from things like your phone, right. Which doesn't allow you to go into that creative space because it always wants you to open up and see what Elon tweeted today. And, you know, I think that's all super, super powerful as well. There's also the benefit of traveling for work, you know, just face to face with people creates relationships that are otherwise impossible to do via zoom. Um, and all that is a beneficial thing. Is there a cost to all this? Absolutely. But, you know, I think it's totally worth it if you can, if you can arrange for it. And so, um, on that last, on that last part of your comment there, what are your kind of thoughts on remote work? Is it something that's worked for, for the organizations that you run? Is it your preferred mode of working now? I think it's a really interesting question. I think most people get it wrong. It's not an either or, either or answer. Like, like, I think there are things that can work well in any specific situation or any specific organization. You know, I've started companies and I have them going now that are fully remote. We've never had an office and it's totally fine. I have employees that I've, you know, I talk to every day and I'm on Zoom with hours a day. I've never met them in person, um, you know, plan to change that, but it's like, that's totally, totally doable and totally possible. Uh, I have companies that are a hundred percent in person and they're just like, okay, that's the way we're doing it. Come into the office, you know, tough, tough. Uh, and then I have hybrid companies and those, those work well as well. Like where it's some people are in the office and some people aren't it, there is no one right way or another. Um, and I don't think, you know, I, I think the way we're going is just perfectly fine. Like you need to think about what the opportunity is for your business and then what your constraints are and then craft your kind of work schedule to go around that. So yeah, I, I think people think about it totally wrong. It's become this like religious argument and it's like, well, you know yeah. what? Islam and Christianity, like they're both okay. Like mm-hmm. just pick one, you know, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which one you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's refreshing to hear a nuanced take on the whole, uh, on the whole debate because everybody has kind of like really, really stuck to, stuck to their guns on one side or the other. Uh, I think as you get older, it's like, you're like, you think more deeply about stuff and it's like, Oh, like everybody wants this to be black and white, but it's like totally gray, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, even if you look at fundamental things that we think are like black and white, it's like, um, you know, should you, and I was about to give an analogy of like, 
killing another person. So I won't do that, but, but like are eating animals or whatever. It's like, is that bad? You know, like there's things that people think are like totally right or wrong. And then when you dig into it, you're like, well, what about this part of it? Like, is, are you sure it's as black as white as you think? And like, once you get comfortable with the world being fundamentally broken and full of gray areas, like life gets so much more peaceful. And, you know, that's one of the things I heard people talk about Americans, which is, we used to be really terrible, like tourists going out to foreign countries because we were the country that expected everything to be perfect. It's like, ah, oh, how dare you not have my room ready? Like I'm going to yell at you. And I still see some like older American tourists do this, but like when you kind of compare that to how other people do travel from like foreign countries, they're like, well, okay, my taxi's not here. I'll just wait. <laughs> you know, it's like it, you start to have this idea that no, not everything's going to be perfect and the world doesn't owe you perfection. And so this whole idea, you know, I think as you get older, you start to see there's not as much black and white. Like, you know, there's, there's, uh, the, the world is just going to be broken. Like that's just the way things are. And it gives you so much more peace because you, you just understand that's the way it works. Not that it's supposed to be different. Mm -hmm. And just having to accept that it's not always going to be the way that you think it's going to be. It's never going to be the way you <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's always going to be somewhat broken, you know, like mm -hmm. that's my view on it. And it's like, Oh, that's so much easier to be happy. It's so much easier to be happy when you just change your expectations of what the world's going to be doing for you. Also presents some opportunity for the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, there you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't mean you shouldn't go fix it. You should yeah. absolutely go try to fix it, but you should understand like that's a never ending journey. Just like you're never going to, your journey to health is never going to be like, you don't get there. You don't like, okay, I've arrived. I can eat, uh, I can eat mac and cheese now. Like it doesn't work. Uh, so it's very, it's a very similar kind of thing where I think like this remote work thing, it's like, oh, like this would be so much easier if you guys just changed your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so much easier. I can appreciate that. Um, talk to us a little bit about how, you know, arguably we're in a recession. We're not in a recession. That's another gray area, right? There's an, yeah. another gray area that's kind of up for debate. Um, has it been easier or harder to find good opportunities lately? And, and kind of what are you, what are you seeing in the small, small to medium business, um, acquisition market? Yeah. Uh, sellers are by and large, much more reasonable now because they are ready to sell their equity because they think equity prices are going down. Right. So if you think, if you think about it, if you think we're heading into a recession, you believe equity prices are going to keep going down. So you're ready to sell. Right. So that has created a situation where, okay, like sellers are much more reasonable. On the other side, all the investors also think equity prices are going to go down. So their hurdle rate of what it takes to get a deal done. If you're going to invest in a deal or you're in my situation, like my multiples of what I'm willing to pay for stuff have also gone way down. So what a year ago, I think if somebody were to bring in a deal that's like, okay, well, four times EBITDA, like we're going to make this happen. Like, are you ready to invest in it? Uh, or do you want to do this deal? Like I look at a four times EBITDA deal now and I'm like, well, you know, your EBITDA, your EBITDA estimation is probably high. So this is really in practice eight times EBITDA. So we're going to have to do two and a half. <laughs> so, so all that is like just a long-winded way of saying like deals are still not getting done or they're still getting done kind of at the same um, pace as they were before, but it's because the money side and the sales, the buy side and the sell side have both shifted their expectations like way down. So multiples are going way down and you can see it in like BC as well. It's, it's happening there. They're, they're down whatever, 70% for like series C, series D deals that are getting done these days as well. So, you know, just, just a different set of rules, same old, same old crap as my grandfather would say. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, right? Because from my perspective, like in the real estate world, uh, which typically tends to lag public markets, obviously, mm -hmm. 
um, we're not necessarily seeing the same thing. Like from the buyer's perspective, we're kind of, you know, on the same page as, as what you're seeing in the market, right? Like you're, you're less willing to pay those 8x multiples, right? Right. Um, but the seller side hasn't quite adjusted to the new reality just yet. And they're either just holding out or they're not sellers altogether. So um, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, they, there's still a lot of slack to pull through the system, right? Like the banks on the real estate side are like, you know, it takes them a quarter or two to get things into the workout group or to put pressure on owners, um, you know, or for cash reserves to start getting depleted. So I think it'll be really interesting kind of to see. But yeah, a lot of times as a buyer, what you're competing with is your number one competitor is the seller doing nothing. And a lot of these folks are like, well, I'll just, I'll just hang out a little bit longer until somebody pays me what I want. And, uh, you know, I think you're seeing that in real estate too, you know, given what's going on with CPI in the past few days, it'll be interesting how long the high rates stick around. Um, you know, there was a great, a great tweet thread from Jason Lemkin, who's like a OG kind of SaaS software guy past few days. And he's like, yeah, in 2016, everybody thought the sky was falling too. And turns out those prices people were paying then that were fair in the grand scheme of averages were where it seemed high at the moment, but turned out to be super duper cheap. So, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the frustrations for me. I'm like, guys, like the fundamentals are still really good. Like go buy some stuff, pay a fair price. But most people are pretty, pretty scared at this point. And so now that we've covered a lot about the acquisition side and the whole co-strategy side, um, I'd love to ask you what, what hard skills you think young people should be paying attention to today? Yeah. Look, I think I think it's worth looking at um, what are the broader trends happening here. And under COVID, the um, the ability for jobs of any kind that could be remoted over the internet got are getting remoted even faster. So the you know the fastest growing company in my portfolio of stuff right now is a company we incubated basically a year ago. It's an offshore hiring platform called Near. Helps people hire in LATAM and like it's exploding, like they're growing like 50% a month. And you see this from other like offshore hiring folks. And it's because everybody that's an employer is responding to this downturn by trying to cut costs and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think from a principal standpoint, like I would say, figure out a way as a young person, not to be associated with anything that could be offshore to somebody willing to compete, you know, for a 10th the price or 25% the price or whatever. Um, so that means being involved in things that are much more closely tied to, you know, I think more, more physical type things, right? So if you can develop skills that are going to be tied to those things or experiences in industries, it's going to be really good, right? Like, would you like to be a United States computer programmer right now? Or would you like to be an HVAC person, like an HVAC tech? Hmm. <laughs> I think the HVAC tech has a lot more feature to it. Now, None of that says that the kind of basic skills that are always going to be in vogue, um, those aren't going anywhere, right? Like what I do, nobody's offshoring my job. Like it's just not possible. Um, same thing with being able to sell well. Like if you're if you're a salesperson, you can write your own ticket um, just because it's very unlikely that stuff's going to get offshored and put someplace else. But in terms of skills, like I would really think about, you know, how do you focus on things that have a lot of tailwinds? Um, the good news is like from a code up perspective or a tech perspective, um, being a programmer is there's just continues to be such enormous demand. It doesn't matter how many of those jobs get offshored, but you know, it's worth, it's worth being, you know, careful about, okay, well, what is, what does that mean in the long term? You know, what does it look like 10 or 15, 20 years from now as well? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So again, alluding back to that kind of like starting with the end in mind thing. Absolutely. Um, 
And that's a really interesting perspective as well. Uh, what you said about, would you rather be a U.S. software engineer or an HVAC technician, right? It's yeah. like, I, I, I think like the point that you're trying to make there is just be mindful about what you're choosing to do in this environment where a lot of things are getting offshore and, and there's a, there's a, um, a massive opportunity for people who have capital to, to just use labor arbitrage and wage arbitrage. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, and I guess what are the other trends that you're paying attention to, right? Cause if you go on Twitter right now, the only two things that everyone is talking about, and you know, maybe this is a little bit stale, but like crypto and AI and yeah. you know, it seems like everybody, those are like the two hot button things, but obviously there are always much more things going on in the background. So what are the, what are the two trends that you're really paying attention to? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I'm kind of bored by those two trends actually <laughs> AI and, <laughs> and stuff. I think, uh, I think it's really the, the Occam's razor for both of those is like, you know, when you look at them for me, it's like, wait a second. So what's the, what's the actual utility, right? So, you know, in terms of crypto, I think we've come back to this idea that it turned out to be really good for two things like, you know, extra, extra governmental, like financial transactions in the case of moving money around uh, and scams. Those appear to be the two things that crypto is really good for, you know, and I think I'm still very lost as to what the utility is of it. Um, yes, did I speculate like hell in NFTs and like, did I buy Solana and watch it go to the moon? Like, yeah, that's super fun. So don't get me wrong. I played the game too. But in the end, those things don't have a ton of utility, which is kind of the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger complaint about that. The AI stuff is really interesting. You know, people are like, you can see where this is going. And then you ask them like, okay, are you willing to bet like your business on this? Like, do you really trust this answer that you're getting? And a lot of times they're like, no, I don't trust this. Like I, I wouldn't bet my life. Would you, would you trust medical advice you got from chat GP tree? No way. <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm going to go read what's on webmd.com because that's a trusted source. So anyway, those are kind of things that kind of why I'm kind of bored of it. And I think there's an argument to be made that what they've done with chat, you know, GPT three is to some extent it's topped out, right? You're not going to get beyond what they've done in the large kind of with the large language model stuff right now. Um, so anyway, kind of bored with that stuff to be honest with you you know i think we continue to be in a really interesting situation with um with the generational shifts in the united states so the baby boomers retiring so there's a lot of kind of second order effects going on there um and then the second trend that you know i'm really paying a ton of attention to is just this globalization of talent you know and what's happening is as more and more jobs and, and, and companies are able to be built globally you know i've got entire businesses with foreign workers now um, nobody in the United States at all. So those are two things like a lot emanates from those things and creates a lot of cool opportunities for people. Yeah. I think the baby boomer point, um, actually has a, a ton of ripple effects, right? Like what's going to happen to the assets that they have accumulated over their lives. And, um, it has a ton of implications for, yeah. for younger people to, to kind of start thinking about now. So um, I can appreciate that perspective because I, it feels like we're just all being surrounded with that cloud of, of crypto and AI and like, you know, it, it only takes you so far. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I've, I started a, a venture fund in 2014. I'm still involved in it and those funds still exist. Our two most successful companies are on, are in the new business creation space and parking. Those hmm. are our two biggest winners. <laughs> it's like, parking. yeah. 
So yeah, they uh, it's called Flash in Austin, and mm-hmm. they created a whole sort of they basically iPadized or like modernized the old like take a ticket and let let some person work in there steal your money uh, type situation for parking lot owners, dynamic pricing, all that kind of stuff. So, but it's just like something if you talk to VCs, they're like, ah, nobody cares a shit about parking. <laughs> it's like, well, actually a lot of people care a lot about parking and so does Uber and other folks in cities as well. So, you know, there's everybody, you know, the nature of social media is everybody wants you to focus on the new flashy, shiny object. And there's some benefit to doing that. Meanwhile, like there's a lot of alpha being created in things that people just aren't even slowing down and thinking about. Mm-hmm. So it goes without saying, spend some more time thinking about the things that people aren't paying attention to. Uh, it's my big complaint about social media. Like, you know, it's a situation where it's like, um, you know, it's like, go out and do some stuff in the real world. Like, that's my big, <laughs> that's, that's the most annoying thing. Like, and people are like, write a thread about how to become bigger on Twitter. I'm like, that is so lame. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just the lamest thing. Like, I'm much more interested in like, go do something in the real world, go experience something and then report back and we can learn and use social media as the, as the medium, as opposed to something where like social media is the goal in itself. Like, this isn't, this isn't real. This is a bunch of, you guys could all be chatbots for all I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so go do something in the real world and then let's talk. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's gotten tired of the 13, <laughs> 13 books I need to know to, to be successful. Uh, well, you know, the scam those guys are running, right? It's super interesting. Like, um, and look guilty, like I'm selling a course too now. And there's lots of reasons why I'm selling a course, even though a year ago I would have said I wasn't going to, but like the, um, but what those guys all do is they all get affiliate fees for selling Gumroad courses. And they're like these same five or 10 courses. So those, those things are all on the back end, just trying to get you to go buy some $200 course on Gumroad and they keep a hundred dollars of it for writing threads. Like that's all that, like, you know mystical wisdom wow. accounts and stuff like that. That's, that's all what's going on. It's just content marketing for, affiliate. it's all affiliate marketing. I'm probably going to spend the next 15 minutes blocking all those accounts just so I don't see that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, they do, you know, that's the other mistake on Twitter. Like I used to spend a lot of time getting mad about stuff. Like that's just wrong. Like that's not the way it should be. And now I'm just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> like mute, not yeah, interested. Not for me. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, I do want to give you a chance to shout out your whole co-course. I think that's actually going to be pretty valuable for a lot of people here, especially with the expertise that you've garnered over your career. So yeah. please go ahead. Thank you. Self-promotion time. Yeah. So Mirko, Mirko sent us a whole, he's my, runs all the media stuff that I do. And uh, he's actually in Argentina. So and he sent us, sent us a list. He's like, make sure you promote the course. I was like, okay, we'll promote the course. But um, yeah, so I took everything I know about Holdco's and we've created an online course. So we finished recording all the videos yesterday. I've recorded like 300 hours of videos that's getting edited down uh, and put everything I know into one place, easy to consume. And then we've created a community around that. And then there's monthly office hours that I have for people who have questions and stuff like that. And it's so it's for anybody that wants to go from zero to owning multiple multiple businesses, whether small or large, and how you go about building that portfolio, thinking about designing it, financing it, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's all in that all in that course. Uh, and you can find more about it um, at holdco.gridley.com, which is my uh, website for it. And uh, I hopefully people buy it because I, I want to help them and I want to take yeah. their money too. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> uh, you can appreciate the honesty. Yeah. When you say um, anybody who's looking to uh, build a portfolio of companies, I don't know anybody who doesn't fit that mold. So um, I'm sure there'll be a ton of interest and uh, for sure we'll link to it in the show notes as well. hundred percent. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks for being interested in what I have to say. So yeah, totally. Thank you for being interesting. And uh, I really appreciate your time, Michael. Any, any, um, what's the best place for people to uh, get a hold of you if they want to get in touch? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Girdley. And uh, until Elon burns down the servers, I'll be there. Awesome. Well, <laughs> we appreciate your time. Thanks again for coming. All right, man.